Greatest Hits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've got two more hours of going against the grain for this week. John can't wait, guys. John's excited. He's not worried about the heat. He didn't get depressed by the rain yesterday. No. He's fine. He's pumped. Although, I, and I'm going to sound like an old man now talking about the weather. Oh, my God. Do your bones ache? Is that what you're going to tell me? No, these poor people at Lafayette Square I was going to bring oh, up. Oh, yeah. We had an absolutely terrible storm yesterday afternoon, mm-hmm. folks. And... Uh, and it wasn't predicted. There was a 12% chance of rain. I actually looked in the sky and said, oh, it looks like it's clouding up. I'm going to look on my phone at the Weather Channel. And they said, oh, 12% chance of mm-hmm. rain. And then the heavens opened and lightning strikes. And unfortunately, four people were struck by lightning one block from the studio here. Mm-hmm. Um, two of them were killed, uh, a 76- and 75-year-old couple from Wisconsin. And two people are in critical condition still in the hospital. It was a scary storm if you were out, as I was, standing (laughs) under a a metal framework holding up an awning and heard probably that crack because it was a a really bright flash and immediately really loud. I was about to say thunderous clap of thunder. Um, But yeah, it was a little scary. Died down pretty quickly before Man. I decided I was not going to stand under that awning anymore, no. but still was standing in a puddle for for the next couple hours. My bones do ache, though, but <laughs> I think that's the general is... humidity. <laughs> well, we'll go forth with, with sympathy for your bones here, John. Uh, the Washington Post is ending this week with an editorial criticizing Joe Biden for fist bumping MBS and getting nothing out of it. Finally. Yeah. I mean, they were always going to do that, right? Because it was their writer who got yeah, chopped up. That's right. right. Never mind all those uh, Yemeni school kids. But yeah, nobody's talking about them. No, we off and on, right? Off and on. Oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yemen, what's going on over there? And then mm-hmm. everybody kind of looks away. That's right. Um, but it does seem now that the Saudis and the Emiratis are, are making these uh, anonymous promises that soften the blow. So we are we are going to talk about, you know, them saying, no, no, no. If there's a real gas crunch this winter, don't worry, guys. Like, we got you. We yeah, can we'll up, we can up production more and more. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly how we should interpret that, but I'm going to ask one of our guests about it. Good. We are also going to talk about China suspending conversations with the United States on a lot of important topics, uh, military cooperation and climate cooperation among them. We are going to talk about what the FBI director had to say yesterday about allegations that his agents have inappropriately downplayed or dismissed allegations against Hunter Biden as disinformation. And then also, you know, what role should the press play when Sure, there might be lots of motivation uh, among different parties mm-hmm. for pouncing on information, but mm-hmm. that information still needs to be investigated. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Ray had some things to say about how, like, well, listen, when we go and have these meetings saying um, uh, malign actors might be pushing this information, it's not, we're not judging the veracity of the information. We're just telling people what role it's playing in the info sphere, or whatever. And it's like, okay, but so. Does this shift, again, some responsibility on the press to understand this? Right. You know, like, how do we? Sure. OK. And it seems to me that there was a time in the not too terribly distant past where the press made it their business to understand these issues. Right. And this is a, something that Matt Taibbi, among others, has has been critical yeah. about since the dawn of Russiagate, mm-hmm. saying, like, this is a thing that campaign that campaigns do. You know, yes. they set up meetings and then say, oh, look, there's a there's been a meeting between blow up blah and so and so about this topic. And mm-hmm. everybody knows that's a tactic. And you don't run with it as though 
it is, you know, verifiable fact. Mm-hmm. But so we yes. are going to talk about that and, and what Chris Ray had to say about it. Uh, we are going to talk about the meeting between Russia and Turkey uh, that's happening today. We will get into some U.S. politics and political ads and maybe even talk a little about CPAC. Yeah. That has some pretty funny merch. Uh, Think Outside the Swamp sounds like a pretty fun T-shirt to wear. You can't cancel America. Great stuff. Uh, and uh, John is going to tell us what's up in the art world yeah. a little bit later. We're going to try something a little fun. bit new. Yeah. To talk about art today. Art. In addition to news of the weird and politics. And politics. Yeah. Um, but we also have some other headlines to start with. There's some economic news. Joe Biden got a very good jobs and unemployment report sure uh, for did. the month of July, much better than expected. I think jobs were like double yeah. some expectations. Yeah. Um, so that's good news if you want people to have jobs mm-hmm. and be employed, which is not really everyone's goal right now. No. The goal <laughs> is to bring inflation under control. Yeah. You know, in any other period, this this jobs number today. More than half a million, like 560,000, wow. something like that. Yeah. But more than half a million anyway. Yeah. Uh, added in July, unemployment rate is officially 3.5%. Uh, right. You got to sprinkle. Which is fantastically low. Fantastically low. Of course, you have to recall, one, the nature of some of that employment Mm -hmm. and the ubiquity of gig work in the United Mm -hmm. States right now. You also have to recall uh, the really large swaths of people who are left out of that count. Right. Like if you've been looking for work for too long, you're not counted as unemployed anymore. And other kind of ridiculous categories that, that warp that figure. But, yeah, it would still be something to gloat about if Joe Biden's own former economic advisors had not been saying for some time uh, what we need to do is throw people out of work yeah. to bring down inflation. Nice, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, companies are actively looking forward to that happening. We talked about Bank of America yesterday saying, yep, we're really excited for when people f- have a hard time finding work again. Um, and the Fed is really barely pretending that it didn't want to cause a recession anymore, right? And so... Against this backdrop, you have the great uh, unemployment numbers, the great job addition numbers, and U.S. stocks falling. Yeah. Which the Wall Street Journal explains by saying uh, it means the feds are going to have to raise interest rates even more. That's right. To slow inflation because they haven't put any people out of work yet, which means more uh, pressure on markets. You know, which that, is a phrase I do not, I do not know what that means. That, I guess it has some meaning. Well, that, but, that's you know. very scary to me because already mortgage rates have gone from around 2%, slightly less than 2% mm-hmm. to 5%. Mm-hmm. Well, if the Fed raises interest rates another half point or even maybe a full point they're talking about mm-hmm. uh, in, in the September meeting, uh, we're, we're headed back to the early 80s again. Mm-hmm. You know, this is going to be devastating for, for people, for example, who want to buy their first home. Already, housing prices are out of reach for most Americans, Mm -hmm. most young Americans anyway. Mm -hmm. And then when you couple that. Even most not so young Americans. Yeah, look at us. (laughs) Yes. And then when you couple that with high interest rates, yeah, then, you know, good luck. No, I know. I don't know how my kids are going to end up doing it. No. I will say my savings account interest rate. Is it 1.6%? I got an email yesterday saying mine was 1.5. Yeah, so I'm going to be, we're going to be fine, right? That'll definitely balance out that mortgage rate. That's great. Yeah. There was also some really nasty news out of Tennessee uh, where apparently some uh, gross people spread anti Semitic flyers all over a neighborhood in West Nashville. The local Fox station says more than 40 people woke up to these flyers on their driveways, uh, which say horrible things like uh, 
Disney child grooming is a Jewish plot or gun control efforts are a Jewish plot. Immigration, John, you'll be surprised That's to learn. Be as a, a Jewish, Jewish plot. plot. And the COVID agenda, mm. also a Jewish plot. The flyers are replete with uh, nutty quotes from Revelations and direct people to a very Nazi-coded website with a bunch more videos on the topics, uh, some of which have racked up, you know, thousands of views. That's great. Although it's thousands, you know, I think the most was like 8,000 views over uh, a three-year period. So not not you know yeah. not not really like busting ratings here um and these you know whoever's behind these flyers are obviously uh nutcases yeah. but you know these are also mainstream issues right immigration and gun control are very mainstream republican yeah. issues right. and i think also we should kind of be aware of how this child grooming yeah, this manufactured is a thing crisis now for the republicans yes and it's made its way from qAnon mm-hmm. to the mainstream and so maybe this is how we should look at QAnon. You know, the QAnon has really fallen from from headlines lately, and yes. I haven't seen any big demonstrations by its supporters. But maybe what has happened is people are looking at that and going, well, what was the most successful? What was the most, the yeah. best at galvanizing people? Yeah, because people, you know, like it and, got like the, you know, uh, yummy mummies of, of L.A. or whatever, mm-hmm. to co- you know, like the same people who think that they're going to be human trafficked at, right. at any moment. Um, but so now they can use that. Uh, in in the mainstream to galvanize supporters. And, and there's there's a Republican gubernatorial candidate who is talking about sex education in the schools being an act of grooming. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. that two years ago was so far off to the fringe mm-hmm. that it, it wouldn't even be raised. So they're taking that and now it's not, oh, Tom, Tom Hanks isn't a pedophile anymore, right? right? Uh, 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 Donald Trump is not rounding up all of the Hollywood pedophiles, right. but they can take this very effective uh, mobilization tool and use it to achieve their real ends, which yes. seems to be, you know, vilifying all gay people and anybody else these freaks find undesirable. Yes. And of course, you scratch these groups and you find anti-Semitism very, mm-hmm. very shallowly buried beneath the surface. So Almost always. Yeah. And of course, not buried here. Um, so I think, uh, I, I think that we should take this, you know, the, the migration of some of these ideas really seriously, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I I, it is also <laughs> darkly comic. There's a statement at the bottom of these flyers saying these were distributed randomly with no malicious intent. Okay, <laughs> sure. So <laughs> I feel terrible fantastic. for anybody in Nashville waking oh up to, to this garbage on your drive. Can you imagine if you're a Jewish family, <laughs> you wake up to a flyer on your driveway Ugh. that says like, Disney Jews are grooming grooming our children. It's what an awful thing to I'm not to even sure what that means. Is it? I mean, do you know what it means? Disney Jews? What is that? I, I you know, I think it's the same like they're mad at Disney, right? Republicans are mad at Disney now for a whole bunch of different reasons and now they're like, "Oh, Disney's Disney's uh uh, uh setting our children up to right. become trans or whatever so gay people can uh, can right. prey on them okay. and then probably you know then going back to the whole like oh well, who who controls hollywood right. you know it just right. had a, i had a list of people i'm not i didn't fact check the flyer no. to see if it's actually <laughs> jewish or not cuz it's not real and doesn't matter until you know we let republicans sort of uh, use this yeah to push them right. into control it's scary <laughs> it is um, scary we also had, I think, an interesting story in Task and Purpose about Agreed. the house uh, where that drone strike in Kabul earlier this, well, I guess over the weekend took place. Um, that house where uh, al-Zawahiri was killed 
was apparently used in 2012 and 2013 to house contractors for USAID. And at the time, this fellow who uh, apparently looked at the house, and so I think his name is Dan Smock, um, looked at the house and thought, oh, crap, that's my house. That's where I used to stay. Uh, He was working as a contractor for USAID in 2012 and 2013 um, in this very house. Uh, He said the neighborhoods all look the same, but the houses were called poppy palaces. Yes, which they are. Because they had been used by warlords and drug, drug lords. Uh, they're enormous and they're painted in very bright colors. That sounds really fun. <laughs> but so, you know, I mean, the the house has gotten some attention for being owned by the Haqqani Network. Right. And, you know, you you have the U.S. and going, well, we're supposed to be working with the Taliban, but you're obviously right. harboring our enemies. If you're related, you know, if your bedfellows are housing uh, the likes of Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. well, you know. I wonder who owned this house in 2012 or 2013. Which is a totally legitimate question. And nobody's talking about that. What? I mean, we know that the CIA for years um, had a relationship with the Haqqani Network. Mm-hmm. And then they decided, no, we're going to fight the Haqqani Network. So did they then decide again, well, you know what? The Haqqanis aren't that bad. We can at least engage in a in a commercial relationship with them and rent their houses. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, don't know. on one hand, it I mean, goes stranger to, things have happened. It goes to how uh, complicated things are that you know people want yes. to ignore the fact that like y- you do actually have to deal with who is in power in in countries no matter what, and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. But also, you know, potentially reveals just how flexible this idea of guilt by association is. Some people are allowed to to rub shoulders for decades, and yet yes. we must never assume that there's any influence mm-hmm. happening at all. And others, you know, that's right. You 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 high five a Russian coming out of the airport and man, you are an agent for life. That's right. So, yeah, I think I think the story just gets more and more interesting. We also got that uh, Alex Jones verdict pretty fast yesterday. You know, I was excited about that. Uh Um, So we've only gotten back um, compensatory damages, which the jury put at four point one million dollars yesterday. And uh, they're meeting today to discuss punitive damages, which could be, you know, a factor of 10 Mm -hmm. uh, of what uh, compensatory damages were. Alex Jones has preemptively filed for bankruptcy, and he said on the stand that um, he was in bankruptcy. That is not true. He filed for bankruptcy, but the bankruptcy has to be accepted. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that it's not going to be accepted because Mm -hmm. we know, thanks to his uh, his cell phone messages that his attorney stupidly turned over to the uh, plaintiffs, that after he was deplatformed, his donations went from about one hundred thousand dollars a day to eight hundred thousand dollars a day. Wow. So he's got plenty of money that he can pay these families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what the, what they come up with mm-hmm. for the next figure. Um, I think we're going to leave it there. We have some more headlines to get to later in the show, but I know we've got our next guest on the line. So we're going to take a break and come back and talk about John's favorite, Nagorno-Karabakh. <laughs> and we'll also talk China, China, Russia, and I know there's something else. We'll get to it in a minute. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. to Political 
Check, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And now I know what we're going to talk about. Mm. It's going to be China. We're going to talk about the semi-frozen conflict that's been thawing once again. We'll talk about the strange allure of Viktor Orban in some places, if not in other places. So strange. We'll talk about yesterday's grilling of FBI Director Chris Ray. There's a lot to get into, and joining us for it is Mark Sloboda. He's an international affairs and security analyst based in Moscow. Mark, thanks for joining us again. Michelle, John, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. The pleasure's ours. Let's talk about Nancy Pelosi. Uh, the consequences. Oh! <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it just won't stop. Uh, today, More consequences of this jaunt to Taiwan emerged. Uh, China's foreign ministry said it was going to suspend dialogue with the U.S. on a bunch of topics. Um, They include talks between U.S. and Chinese regional commanders and Defense Department heads, uh, along with talks on military maritime safety. Those are canceled. Cooperation on returning illegal immigrants, criminal investigations, transnational crime, illegal drugs, and climate change will all be suspended. And this is, of course— a lot less uh, exciting than firing some missiles over Taiwan Island, but, you know, potentially also very serious, right? Because it is through dialogue that conflict is avoided. It is through dialogue and presumably trust that we will only be able to make meaningful steps on climate change. So I wanted to ask, you know, now a few days on from that visit, how do you see China's reaction to the trip so far and and how important is uh, canceling some of these conversations? Yeah, I think when you take a look at the the rhetoric and the chatter that was coming out of China uh, from official channels, from the People's Liberation Army itself saying they would not sit idly by while uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, threatened uh, the sovereignty of China um, with this, um, uh, you know, pro-separatism uh, tour. Uh, and um we heard uh, from the Chinese president himself, uh, evidently told uh, Joe Biden uh, straight up that those who play with fire get burnt, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, w- we heard from a number of uh, state uh, media newspapers in China uh, things like um, uh, warning shots fired in front of Nancy's Pelosi's plane or uh, People's Liberation Army aircraft escorting her in to highlight their dominance in the area, uh, something of the sort. And nothing of that sort happened. So I would have to say that China's reaction is, uh, compared to the rhetoric beforehand, quite restrained. Um, And it's certainly being read in the U.S., in the West, that China is weak, Hmm. that their response was weak. Um, and uh, the, the uh, Western commentariat as as uh, basically trumpeting it as a victory. Now, I think it's also important to compare the um, Chinese reaction to the Chinese reaction in the, the mid 90s and uh, 96, mm-hmm. uh, when there was a similar uh, crisis in Taiwan, and it was the last time that a U.S. Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, because mm-hmm. we all love Newt, mm-hmm. uh, was there um, and and provoked a similar crisis. And actually, at least in military terms, in terms of the type of military drills that are being conducted post facto around and through 
the skies above Taiwanese airspace in the in the case of missiles are nearly identical. Mm -hmm. uh, the, of course, the scale of those exercises uh, and the amount, the type of armaments on display, China has, has a much more advanced military now than they did uh, 25 years ago. Uh, but it is important. Um, it, I think it should also be noted that China did toss some sanctions uh, on Taiwan, mm -hmm. uh, particularly against food and agriculture. Mm -hmm. wow. They personally sanctioned Nancy Pelosi mm -hmm. and her family as a result of the trip, which actually might be significant, as I understand <laughs> yeah. that her husband has his finger in a lot of uh, investment pies, uh, mm -hmm. uh, China not being the only one. So she may she may take a person. Her family may take a personal hint from that after all. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the I think the big winner of this standoff is is not China and it's not um uh, the United States, and it's not because they, they they know that their window of military dominance over the Taiwanese Straits and the South China Sea is rapidly closing if they're not already at at a uh, strategic parity, mm -hmm. uh, at least in those locations. Um, uh, but and neither the separatists in Taiwan. And I have to say that for the first time in Taiwan, we saw some really significant uh, pro-Chinese protests mm -hmm. uh, in Taiwan. And polls show that about a third of the Taiwanese population actually would prefer closer relations with China and does not look favorably on close military relations mm -hmm. uh, with the United States. But the big winner out of all of this is the Sino-Russian Strategic Alliance. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree with that. Uh, so talk because, to uh, Go on, Mark. Yeah, they keep pushing... China and Russia together, provoking mm -hmm. them both in their backyards at the exact time, using extremely similar playbooks for the, you know, the different situations that they are. Um, you know, the idea that you that you by hook or by crook ring, uh, you know, opposing countries with um, uh, uh, opposition uh, uh, states. With 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 politics that you help bring to power that are extremely hostile and whose countries basically serve as as battle platforms and and proxy forces to use, um, and that's exactly what the U.S. is is and has been doing with China. They, you know, de facto support Taiwanese uh, independence and and more than that, again, mm -hmm. the creation of Taiwan as a, a battle platform and a and a proxy force, despite still paying. Uh, technical lip service uh, to the one China policy, which they violate 10 ways from Sunday every time they, they open Joe Biden opens his uh, septuagenarian mouth mm -hmm. um, and Nancy Pelosi's uh, right on the, the queue. But um, right after uh, the um, statement, we heard, um, you know, both Russia and China making statements about it. And one of the Chinese statements was, uh, yeah, the Russian-Chinese uh, strategic partnership needs to be closer, mm -hmm. uh, closer, closer, closer. And it's always closer and it's getting there. And it, we're, we're at the point of military inter, uh, interoperability uh, is seriously taking place between the Russian and Chinese. And they're even conducting joint uh, air patrols uh, in the Pacific and 
joint strategic defense drills, which is an amazing level of trust between two nuclear armed powers. Yeah. Well, so in that light, you know, how do we take these comments from this Russian senator, deputy head of the the Senate's International Committee saying, yeah, Russia would support China if there was conflict with the U.S. over Taiwan? Uh, He said, I I see no reason we wouldn't help China. I think China would hope for help from Russia because it would be difficult to confront the U.S. without Russia's help. Uh, But also that Russia would like to see some movement from China in the other direction, uh, implying we we have to assume that Russia might like to get a little more specific backing or assistance from Beijing in its proxy war with NATO in Ukraine. I mean, this is a senator, right? This is not a statement from the Kremlin. Um, This senator is described as a close ally of Vladimir Putin's. And so I, I wonder if this is just a legislator who's presenting his own desires or if we should uh, read these comments as having a particular audience. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's the light of day between mm-hmm. this position and what has come out of the Kremlin before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they have long made clear uh, that the Russia stands completely by China uh, with its position on Taiwan. They have previously offered assistance uh, you know, saying that, that they would support. Um, and I, again, Russia is doing joint naval drills and air patrols uh, in the Pacific there, mm-hmm. um, including through, uh, you know, uh, right around Japanese airspace. Um, so I, I think that very much completely represents uh, the Kremlin view. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did. He did say that if China asked for and of course, the type of help that that Russia could provide is um, somewhat limited. Uh, uh, Russia has a very substantial submarine force, including in the Pacific, but their their blue water surface navy is not what it was during the Soviet Union. Uh, they've redirected that towards uh, missile uh, development, uh, cruise missiles, and um, and and their submarine force, and that would be something militarily. But there's lots of ways that Russia could. Uh, assist China in any type of of Taiwanese conflict. And Mm -hmm. the supply of of energy and materials as much as China needs would be no small part of that. Before I ask you to talk about some uh, American security goings on, I I wanted to ask if you could update us on what's going on in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, This, of course, was a a pretty frozen conflict until 2020. Uh, It kind of resurged then and hasn't ever really fully simmered down since. And this is now being presented as perhaps, you know, conflict reemerging in this moment because, you know, Russia, Russian troops have have played peacekeeper there. And Russia is, you know, uh, perhaps distracted with what's going on in Ukraine. So what what is happening in Nagorno-Karabakh right now? Yeah, I heard uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is actually John's favorite. So yeah. John to, to take, take the lead on I have a lot one. to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so basically, I, I don't entirely agree that it hasn't simmered down since 2020. I think it has. Mm-hmm. When you take a look at, you know, the, the nature of uh, volatile ethno-religious, ethno-nationalist ceasefires like this, the, the level of violence that has occurred uh, since the ceasefire and, and Armenia's, uh, you know, pretty substantial uh, crushing loss mm-hmm. and being driven out of Azerbaijani territory that they have uh, occupied uh, since the 1990s. 
uh, and even losing some of the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, as a as a result of this. Um, I I think that this is definitely the Armenian government, uh, perhaps with a little bit of encouragement from Turkey or the United States, taking advantage of a situation where they know that Russia uh, is uh, focused elsewhere. Um, and uh, using that to maybe create a few new facts on the ground, mm. uh, another settlement here, another uh, uh, heights in in the hilly uh, Nagorno-Karabakh area uh, taken. Uh, but um, the accusations that both sides are basically making of each other are are pretty valid. That neither one is one hundred percent living up to the the political terms of the ceasefire. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically, Azerbaijan is is basically taking over and rebranding um, uh, Armenian Orthodox churches uh, that, that were in those territories of Azerbaijan that Armenia had occupied. And, and uh, that is certainly uh, a, a cultural crime, if you will. Uh, a crime against our Armenian um, history and and uh, uh, the history of Christianity in the area. Um, at the same time, uh, Azerbaijan is uh, rightly accusing Armenia of dragging their heels on several provisions of the ceasefire that Pashinyan was forced uh, in a very you know uh, politically damaging way to accept uh, that they have to come up with a new road from mainland Armenia to the uh, Armenian uh, enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh and Arjan, rather than the existing Lachin corridor. They, uh, Azerbaijan is trying to push them to build that road more quickly that they promised to, mm. uh, so that, that that is not the primary route for strategic reasons. Uh, also, Armenia agreed to build a transport corridor through their territory that would connect the two separated halves of Azerbaijan, because Azerbaijan actually has a, a small piece of yes. Azerbaijan separated from the rest of it that is tucked down in the south on the other side of Armenia mm -hmm. with Turkey. And they promised to create a transportation corridor connecting not only the two sides of Azerbaijan, but also, uh, of course, providing Turkey with a, a very convenient uh, uh, trade route there as well. And Armenia Free is dragging route. their mm -hmm. heels on that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a very complicated. And, and mm -hmm. your big mistake when you're looking at this conflict is to look for any kind of white hats. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and uh, there, there are no good guys in this situation. Uh, really, uh, both sides have legitimate grievances. Uh, you know, international law, uh, ethnic, cultural rights, uh, history of conflict in the region that precedes both Armenia, but both well, it certainly precedes Azerbaijan. Goes back to the Roman Parthian. Uh, battles in the area that were fighting over the same sets of hills between mm -hmm. east and west. And it's still going on today. And I don't think it will ever completely be over in the in in the immediate scope of, of human history. But I also don't expect a major blowout of violence. I mean, we may see a few more escalations, but I think both sides 
regard the ceasefire right now as as advantageous to their respective positions, and neither side is is eager for a resumption of hostilities. Armenia, because they're not militarily capability, and Pashinyan. Um, you know, who had pro-Western geopolitical leanings was forced to accept that Russia is the only thing preventing them from being completely overrun by Azerbaijan because of the big economic and military power imbalance mm -hmm. that now exists between the two of them. And at the same time, Azerbaijan got most of what they wanted, a huge political victory with with very light military footprint. And they don't want say, the ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh to ruin the state of their relations with the West. Of Azerbaijan still gets mm -hmm. kind of tacit support from the United States and the EU in a lot of things, and certainly from Turkey, simply because Armenia is a Russian treaty ally, however much Pashinyan might wish in ideal universe, where Armenia isn't the landlocked nation right up against um, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Russia for, for a different situation. Uh, so I, I don't expect any major blowout. Both sides, you know, will finagle the ceasefire and and try to avoid fulfilling it. But uh, I think we're looking at a a new frozen conflict or at least a substantial amount yeah. of time. I mean, a, a ceasefire serving both sides is, is pretty good, right, for yeah. a conflict that we assess as yeah. Yeah. never ending in the scope of human history. So okay, That's right. pretty well, we good. can leave it there. That we'll call that good news. Uh, Mark, I want to ask you about the FBI and Hunter Biden also. Uh, FBI Director Chris Wray was grilled yesterday by a couple of uh, Senate Republicans, uh, among them everybody's favorite elderly pigeon finder, Chuck Grassley. Uh, but, you know, Grassley— Hey, 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 I feed— <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, this is about Grassley's uh, Twitter feed, which is an absolute source of delight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Grassley uh, was asking about Grassley and others were asking about the way the FBI has handled allegations of financial and other crimes connected to Hunter Biden, and particularly about the behavior of one agent who Republicans say worked on both Russiagate allegations against Trump and on allegations against Hunter Biden and, and treated them very differently. Grassley had sent a letter to the FBI saying he had gotten credible whistleblow whistleblower accounts that the agent Timothy Tybalt in particular, downplayed or dismissed allegations about Biden as Russian disinformation and that he simultaneously violated FBI policy with partisan social media posts, you know, uh, condemning Trump. Uh, Ray says the kinds of things Tybalt is alleged to have done were deeply troubling and uh, implied that there was an investigation underway into these whistleblowing reports. Uh, Tybalt is uh, on leave, according to the Senate Republicans. But Ray also uh, suggested that Tybalt might not have actually been anywhere close to the Hunter Biden investigation. Um, he said the FBI was pursuing allegations against Hunter Biden aggressively. So kind of, you know, like Ray's just trying to be very careful with his language here. But I wonder if there is anything important there to read between the lines. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a, a, a full expert on, on U.S. The Byzantine domestic mm. politics or uh, the relations of their agencies. But it seems pretty clear to me that from the 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 Russia gate scandal slash hoax slash witch hunt, uh, that it was clear that the FBI is, is just a full partisan hotbed. Mm. Uh, and Tybalt yeah. is far from the only one 
that bears uh, serious investigation. And where this comes from is that the the U.S. national security state views Russia and China as enemies. Mm-hmm. And if you have any politician who who of any stature, particularly one that could step into the White House like Trump did, and even suggest that foreign policy uh, and military policy towards Russia or China should be different, they're going to get stomped on. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, th- that will take partisan form uh, when Trump was so dominant, uh, you know, in capturing the Republican Party. And that made a lot of national security people very stalwart Democrats, because the Democrats became the party of the national security state, kind of a reversal of what we saw during the McCarthyite area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just another tip of that iceberg. And I, I thought the, some of the questioning was, was uh, really amazing uh, when the uh, FBI director, Chris Ray, under uh, questioning said, well, you know, our job isn't even really to look at whether the allegations, you know, uh, you know Hunter Biden's best laptop hits and corruption is true or not. Right. Our, our concern is is how the Russian, uh, you know, another state, meaning the Russia or anyone else, could use this. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, even if it's the truth, we're supposed to cover it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a, that's that's base. That's essentially what he said, and and he doesn't essentially see anything wrong with labeling it Russian disinformation uh, if they assessed, uh, you know, the true allegations to be a national security threat to the U.S. Um, and I mean, and just the answers that he gave uh, when when being questioned by Blackburn uh, mm-hmm. in the Senate. Um, so do you agree that the allegation of secret collusion between President Trump and Russia was a hoax? And Ray responded, I don't think that's the terminology I would use. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of amazed. I mean, like, so you're still playing. You're still living on that hill. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why didn't you follow up on that and say, well, what terminology would you use? Right. And then he went on to say, do you agree that the, the Hunter Biden laptop was not Russian disinformation? Mm-hmm. And he refused to answer it. He said, now you're talking about an ongoing ongoing investigation. investigation. We're looking into it seriously. I mean, I will say, though. It is a pretty big step from a couple years ago to have the FBI director saying, well, I personally wouldn't call it a hoax and not saying, oh, no, no, it's very we're looking into this very seriously. I mean, that is that in itself is 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 damning, even though he didn't want to go that far. Yeah, yeah. I I think what really needs to be done is I'm sure you've seen of the the rap video clips with Hunter Biden's laptop life of drugs and prostitutes and guns and corruption uh, spliced together with some with some with some artful um, rap lyrics. I think that needs to be played on the Senate floor. I I think we need a Hunter Biden best hits uh, in in rap video style uh, played from the Senate floor, uh, because maybe that's the only thing that would, uh, you know, push it through to the public. How corrupt this family, this Biden family is and and what a a wastrel the president's son is and how much of a job he has done covering up for him and, you know, basically, uh, you know, playing a tag team to to rake in uh, tens of millions of dollars from, uh, you know, foreign companies and interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Mark, before we let you go, is just to talk a little. Victor Orban has made another appearance at at CPAC. Uh, and he has really been, this obviously, Prime Minister of Hungary. He's been adopted by U.S. conservatives as a hero and kind of a, a, a pre, the precursor to, to our great Donald Trump. Um, Orban remains pretty popular at home and obviously pretty popular among a, a particular strain of American conservatives. And I wanted to ask, you know, uh, whether his embrace by the American right will have political consequences in Europe and whether Orban really has any friends, you know, in, in his own neighborhood. Yeah, he does, I don't think he has a lot of friends, certainly not in power in mm -hmm. his own neighborhood. There might be some right wing uh, parties, uh, conservative parties in Europe, uh, you know, that do look to him, but certainly none that that have any significant power uh, in government uh, elsewhere in the EU. But this definitely will buttress his opinion. I mean, under Orban, uh, uh, Hungary is one step away continually from EU sanctions and, and all kinds of punishments simply for their not embracing the, the liberal woke politics that that characterizes the EU and far more seriously, you know, uh, questioning the EU and NATO's foreign policy course, uh, particularly with regards to Russia, but mm. but not only so. But I mean, he's a nationalist populist. It is that the rise of that politics has become a bit of a global phenomenon. And we saw Boris Johnson, we saw Viktor Orban, we saw some five-star league politics in Italy, and mm -hmm. and Trump still, despite you know the establishment, maybe the old establishment, maybe not liking it. Trump still has the Republican Party captured uh, under that uh, nationalist populist wing. And Viktor Orban jetting in to CPAC and saying, uh, I'm against the globalists and that's why I'm in Texas. I mean, that's that's red meat fodder. That's, mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I'm not a big fan of, I mean, the whole Viktor Orban phenomenon, in a way, the international appeal of nationalism which is a difficult concept to wrap a, 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 a head around without making contradictions. Mm. But it is a definite response to, I mean, he likes using this term globalism. I'm not sure what it means, but liberal internationalism of the type that the uh, American Hungarian oligarch, uh, George Soros, likes to promote and meddle in countries all over the world. So this is kind of a, a bit of blowback from that and kind of a direct response to it in a lot of ways. And I have to say, on a personal level, I don't support George Soros promoting his brand of politics in other countries any more than I support Viktor Orban uh, uh, cheering on um, uh, nationalists and, and, and conservatives in Texas. Mm -hmm. But wow, is it an interesting time to be alive? Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, it makes for all kinds of inter interesting foreign policy spikiness mm. out of all of this, considering how out of step Victor Orban is with the supposed unity of the EU and NATO uh, on Russia in particular. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm all for getting some popcorn and watching the fires burn. I mean, I think that's 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 a good attitude for this Friday. I think that's I think right. we could leave it there. That was Mark Sloboda, international affairs and security analyst. Mark, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back and talk Russia, Turkey, and the meeting happening in Sochi today. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we will be right back.
Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with Michelle Witte. President Putin and Turkish President Erdogan met today in the Black Sea city of Sochi in their second face-to-face meeting in the last three weeks. Aides to both sides said that today's meetings were a continuation of talks begun three weeks ago in Iran. Erdogan has emerged as an important mediator in the Russia-Ukraine war, hosting an early diplomatic meeting between the two sides and more recently mediating the agreement that led to the export of Ukrainian grain. Although Turkey is a member of NATO, it has steadfastly refused to participate in Western sanctions against Russia, and at the same time, Russia is a major provider of Turkish energy, accounting for a quarter of its crude oil and half of its natural gas imports. We're happy to be joined today by Elijah Manier. He's a veteran war journalist who has spent more than 35 years covering the likes of Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia, among other conflict zones. Welcome back, Elijah. It's always good to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. What can you tell us about uh, the purpose of the meetings today in Sochi? Even if they were a continuation of the earlier talks, what was the topic? What did they, what did they accomplish today? Well, as you rightly said, the two presidents, Erdogan and President Putin, met to discuss so many important issues between the two countries. Syria was also discussed three Mm -hmm. weeks ago in Tehran because it needs so much attention to avoid further clashes. Iran and Russia reject the Turkish special operation in the north, uh, east and west Syria against the Kurds and to open the road between Syria provinces. So it's important to establish stability in that area. The war in Ukraine, where Turkey plays an important role as a mediator to end the conflict, or perhaps only to facilitate the grain export. Uh So one ship we know that has gone by, and also three others are waiting. There uh, there are other issues like the Nagorno-Karabakh and the six-week conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, where Russia maintains the peacekeeping forces to stop the conflict. And there were recent clashes that upset Russia. And the dialogue between the two presidents, Erdogan and Putin, is very important to find a way to keep this front calm. Also, not only Turkey is present in Syria and Azerbaijan, is also present in Libya and has many mm-hmm. common points in Ukraine and other parts where Russia would like to maintain a good relationship with Ukraine, with uh, Turkey. And there is the Turk Stream pipeline that is still supplying European Union state with gas, notwithstanding the general European stand and support Mm. to the war in Ukraine. And finally, I think the commercial and trade ties and perhaps Russia to buy some Turkish treasury bond to support Erdogan's financial troubles because he's suffering, his country is suffering inflation that have reached around 79%. And Erdogan is facing national election next year. Trade is also important because it has increased by, I think, around uh, 57% and has reached Mm -hmm. 33 billion. So both presidents really need to maintain a regular dialogue and need to discuss how to lower, and that's very important, the currency risk in bilateral trade and promote settlement in national currency to get rid of a little bit of the 
dollars and maintain a de-dollarization policy. The New York Times reported that the Russians are facing increasing financial difficulties in things like the financing of oil and gas contracts and that they're looking for help from the Turks in setting up bank accounts that would allow them to conduct these financial transfers. Does that sound right to you? Can it be that the Russians haven't yet figured out how energy financing uh, should uh, should work during sanctions? Well, actually, it's a bad taste uh, propaganda here mm. and uh, a rhetoric that doesn't stand at all. Uh-huh. You see, Russia's gas supply was reduced via the Nord Stream 1, but remained stable for Serbia and Hungary yes. via the Turk Stream gas, line, uh, gas pipelines. So that brings gas from the Black Sea to the European territory to Bulgaria, Serbia, and Hungary. Mm-hmm. Russia stopped delivering gas to Bulgaria, but continued to fulfilling its obligations to Serbia and Hungary. Now, we have another issue that is uh, the Italian prime minister himself said many EU nations are paying in ruble, and Russia stopped the supply only to 12 out of 27 EU countries. Uh Now, overall, China is the largest importer of Russian fuel, And India is importing also a very significant amount daily, around 700,000 barrels per day. Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands, they are uh, members of the EU and NATO, and they are among the largest importers of oil after China and India. So as the Hungarian prime minister said, Russia's revenue from oil export has increased a lot even if Russia is exporting less. So the Russian coal is doubled of price from last year. And the uh, Russian pipeline delivery is really so important for Germany that is shaking with the rest of Europe when Russia is saying, oh, I need to maintain uh, uh, carry maintenance for this uh, Siemens turbine and uh, the right. EU is accusing Russia of not delivering enough gas because they need it. So all that doesn't indicate really that Russia is in a financial trouble because it doesn't really sound that Russia is in difficulties. No. On, the, on the contrary, no, it it's the other side. Although the Russians have come to rely on the Turks uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, there are still differences between the two sides uh, in uh, mostly in international affairs. The two countries back opposing sides in the war in Syria, as you mentioned a moment ago, they uh, back opposing sides in the Nagorno-Karabakh dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan. How much of a problem do you expect this to be going forward? Or maybe it would be more appropriate for me to ask, do you expect this to be a problem in relations between Russia and Turkey going forward? Well, that is really a very important question because it is not related really to Armenia and Azerbaijan. It goes much beyond that. Mm -hmm. So in 2020, there were six weeks of conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And it was a headache for both Russia and Iran because it brought instability to Asia and on the borders of those countries. Russia has peacekeeping forces on the ground to maintain stability and reduce the tension. However, the recent clashes were provoked by the Azerbaijani, and Russia said it is really concerned. Why? I think Russia believes that the West would do everything in its power to divert the Russian attention from Ukraine 
where the Ukrainians are losing, where NATO and the U.S., uh, all of them are involved, and they're not really managing to break Russia as they plan. So opening several fronts to disperse Russia's effort and present it as incapable of holding a peace agreement or to push Russia to a military conflict in Azerbaijan mm -hmm. in the Western mind could relieve Ukraine a little bit. So because the relationship between Turkey and Azerbaijan is good and President Erdogan in 2020, he uh, was very much present and considered the end of the conflict as a personal victory. This is why I think also the two presidents need to talk about it, because uh, the Russian will not permit the, the, another conflict on its border between Azerbaijan and uh, Armenia, particularly that there's still the, the little bit of clash happened after the visit of the British ambassador to the area and all this, suddenly there is a provocation and there is a conflict between the two countries. I think this area will remain stable if the Azerbaijan, if Azerbaijan wants it or not, mm. because it's really not the time to play with fire. Right. We're also told that one of the topics in the talks that took place today was arms sales. The Turks have bought Russian anti-aircraft missiles, and the Russians are now seeking materiel, especially things like um, guidance technology from the Turks. Can the Turks provide things like that? And do you think they will? Um, I don't think so. I think what is happening is more than that. We've seen on the news in the last few days, the Americans are trying a very wicked uh, plan to convince Turkey to deliver its Russian S-300 and S-400 missiles yes. to, um, to Ukraine. And they are hitting really three birds in one stone. First is to supply Ukraine with Russian weapons to be used against Russian jets. Second is to pretend they are solving the problem of the U.S. sanctions on Turkey for purchasing the S-400 and in, with, uh, by making this uh, very nasty offer, they're saying, well, you will have access to the F-35 and you will have as many F-16 as you want and spare part for your Air Force. Right. And the third point, which is more important, is to create a wedge between Turkey and Russia and really separate the two countries. Can you imagine uh, Turkey offering support to Ukraine in this way? So Turkey and China have no appetite to be directly involved in the war between the U.S., NATO, and Russia in Ukraine. So I don't think that both countries, above all Turkey, will supply any weapons or military uh, hardware or software or technology to Russia to avoid the confrontation with the West. After all, Turkey is still a NATO member and a very important one. And it has also a U.S. airbase hosting 50 U.S. nuclear bombs mm -hmm. in Israel. So I don't think Turkey will be involved. I would like to be involved there. The Russians also are building a nuclear power plant in Turkey that the Turks uh, said today must be completed on time. How important is this energy co cooperation to the relationship? President Putin also said that he hopes to sign a separate economic cooperation agreement with the Turks, if not today, then in the coming days. Uh, what do you think that might entail? Well, I think 
it's very important for Turkey what Russia is doing in uh, in in the Turkish on the Turkish territory. So what we have mentioned above, Russia is also building a nuclear reactor that is capable of supplying 4,800 megawatt, and that uh, reactor the plan was uh, suspended in 2015 when Turkey downed the Russian jet, but after that. The problem was solved, and it began working 2018. And it is supposed to be completed in 2026. Why it's important? Because the Turkish side wants the first part of the nuclear reactor to be concluded before the mid um, uh, 2020, before the mid 2023, mm. which is the time for the Turkish elections. Now, the project has received finance from. Uh, Russia's bank, which is Sparebank, and that is under the US-EU sanctions. However, the Russian company, Rosatom, is the owner of more or less 90% of the plan and has mm -hmm. some clashes with the initial Turkish company, I'm, uh, that is uh, uh, ICTAS. And I'm sorry that I have to interrupt you because we're at, the, we're at a hard uh, stop at the top of the hour. Elijah Manier, thank you for joining us. Elijah is a veteran war journalist who has spent more than 35 years covering Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, Yugoslavia, and a whole bunch of other conflict zones. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have a lot more coming up in the next hour. without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm joined here by my co-host, John Kiriakou, and producer Ray Valencia. And we're about to get into some domestic politics, but there's been some interesting yeah. breaking news. Yeah. News that could it possibly affect you and I? Uh, the White House press secretary has announced that there is a new rule in town from the Department of Transportation. If your flight is delayed or canceled, Delayed by three hours for a domestic flight or six hours for an international flight, you must get a refund within seven days of a refund request if you paid by credit card. Mm -hmm. So I guess we're to understand that if your flight is delayed domestically by three hours and internationally by six hours, then you can request a refund. Right. 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 You deserve a refund for that flight, and then you must get the refund within seven days of requesting it, right? Now, just, just so I have this, this right in my head, mm -hmm. you can request the refund mm -hmm. and still get on the flight, right? I guess. Oh, that's good. I mean, good. this is all well, just come out in the last 20 minutes. Canceled. Let's see. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Oh, oh. Proposes oh. new rules. Oh. But they it, but have the, proposed changes. But the press secretary happen. didn't say that. She said... They've issued a new rule. Yeah, different. which is different. Interesting. Because I definitely had, not very often, but I've had a domestic flight delayed by three hours. Oh, me cool too. to get a refund. Sure. Right? So then? my boyfriend, David, has been trying to get to Chicago from D.C. over the last three days. Oh, I heard the same thing about Garland. Garland can't get to Chicago today. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? There was just a push notification a moment ago saying that more than 1,000 flights have been canceled so far today as thunderstorms close in on the East Coast. So good luck. Well, that only actually... happens every day during the summer on yeah, the it East does. Coast. Yeah. I wonder if they deleted the tweet. The White House? I wonder if they did. Oh, this is a tweet from Press Sec. Yeah. Right? From the White right. House Press Secretary. Right. And now I'm looking because she said issued a new rule. Yes. But it's proposed a new rule. And now there's going to be a public hearing on the rule August 22nd. Oh, so. she's wrong. Ooh. Oh, that's. All right, I'm going to keep digging around. She's going to go to the woodshed for that one. Yeah, I mean, that's a people. People got excited. People in this very room. I was excited. (laughs) Got excited. Well, look, maybe it will. Maybe it'll actually come to pass. Although, well, now we're all all a little deflated. On to politics. (laughs) On to politics. It was a very busy week. Um, Mm. We had primary elections in Arizona, in Missouri, Michigan, Washington State. There was a very quiet primary yesterday in Tennessee that nobody paid any attention to. Uh, There were no big surprises. A couple of election deniers won um, primaries to uh, compete in congressional seats in November. And Tennessee has just undergone redistricting. So they, they redid the districts to protect all of the Republicans running for Congress, um, they're going to pick up a seat or two there. But what else is going on? Let's start with Michigan. Michigan oh, was fascinating Michigan. and infuriating at the same time. So Michigan, you know, the news out of Michigan is, well, there's a governor's race happening there. And the there's a congressional race, primary race, and the most conservative Trump-loving candidate won. Mm-hmm. And he helped. He got a little help. Yeah, from the Democratic National Committee. Yeah, so we've been talking about this on the show about the— And and let me interrupt you, too. The guy that he beat, Congressman uh, Meyer, Peter Meyer, Mm -hmm. he's a first-term congressman. He was the only freshman to vote to impeach Donald Trump. This guy is a true independent. He's one of those rare members of Congress who goes to Washington to represent his constituents rather than just to be a yes-man for his party. And he's the one that the Democrats went after. And he said that he was making a risky move. He knew that it oh, was yes. likely that he would not win or, you know, be reelected if he voted, you know, to impeach Trump. Right. Yes. So, And Democrats really hailed him as being courageous. You know, there was a lot. Yeah. You know, this guy, he's like really he's a, you know, Peter Mayer. He's a really good. He's a really good guy. Yeah. And he's a good Gibbs, guy. Yeah. And Gibbs, you know, was too extreme. Yep. And then they turn around and run ads uh, to bolster yeah. Gibbs. Okay, you know, that's what's so ugly about politics. It's really ugly. I what's, don't like that at and all. And what's crazy about it is Gibbs' campaign really wasn't well-funded. No. And there was more money, you know, used to bolster his campaign by the Democrats than by Republicans. It's, just, it's, kind, of, it's kind of insane. What do you know about that district? Is, is it— a close enough district that the that the Democrats think that they have a chance to beat Gibbs now? Well, that I'm not so sure about, you know, because Michigan's a um, it, it's coming increasingly purple when there's different districts yeah. and they were gerrymandered. So yeah. I'm not really it, sure how like red Pennsylvania, that particular district is. Conservative Democratic. But it's a conservative yeah. district. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats thought they would only have a chance if they had the most conservative MAGA guy mm-hmm. win. And Gibbs won. Uh, the DCCC spent like $500,000 yes. 
to run these ads against him. And I just kind of want to give you a flavor of the ad, because if you're listening to it and you're a Democrat, you're thinking, oh, yeah, this is Democrats running an ad against a Republican. But if you listen to it from the perspective of a Republican Mm -hmm. that is likely to vote in a primary, all these points have been very well polled Mm -hmm. and they are speaking directly to you. And so let's roll the first clip of the Gibbs uh, ad run by the DCCC. John Gibbs is too conservative for West Michigan. Handpicked by Trump to run for Congress, Gibbs called Trump the greatest president and worked in Trump's administration with Ben Carson. Gibbs has promised to push that same conservative agenda in Congress, a hard line against immigrants at the border and so-called patriotic education in our schools. The Gibbs-Trump agenda is too conservative for West Michigan. DCCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. Okay. Okay. That sounds all right. Yeah. It sounds kind of okay. Right. Either, But if you're a Republican, I mean, all these things sound really good. Closest to Trump. Yeah. You know. I see what they did. Yeah. It's very shrewd. It's very under wow. the radar, right? Because wow. even if you're a Democrat, that, if you're so a Main cynical. Street Democrat, you're like, yeah, yeah, he is too conservative for, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you're a conservative... Sounds really good. Yeah, that was a that was a red meat uh, advertisement. Yeah, yeah, it's a red meat advertisement. You, you flagged for me um, something that appeared at a site called uh, Common Sense. It's a it's an op ed written by Congressman Peter Meyer mm-hmm. from the day before the election, and he's calling the Democrats to task for for oh he was outraged supporting his mm-hmm. opponent. And he uh, should be. Yeah, and he should be. You know, I, I didn't realize the ad was that sophisticated. Oh, it's very sophisticated. And there's a history because I wanted to learn more about, you know, how did this start? You know, how, you know, yeah. how did this come from? And I well, was talking to you about Claire McCaskill. Right, in Missouri. Remember, yeah, Missouri, 2012. Uh, Obama was running for re-election. Uh, he had lost that state by a lot, wide margin. Uh, a lot of Republicans were running that, you know, uh, Obama was menacing. They were—it was MAGA before MAGA, you right, know. Uh, right. And so— It was the Tea Party. It was the Tea Party. Yeah. And Claire McCaskill, a Democrat running for Senate, decided that she wanted to run against the most, the most beatable candidate running on the Republican ticket. And there were three competitors at the time, and she selected Todd Akin. Yeah. Now, do we remember what made Todd Akin so popular? Oh, I remember Todd Akin. It was the issue of abortion. Yes, it was. And he was on a Saturday talk show uh, talking about no exceptions for abortion. And he said there shouldn't even be an exception for rape. Right. Because if it's a legitimate rape, the body just shuts this whole thing down. Right. And so you can't get pregnant and from so a rape. You can't get. I mean, it was so bizarre, classic. right? Uh-huh. Okay, just classic. So Claire McCaskill runs these ads, so kind of bolstering Todd Aiken because she wants to run against him in the general election. Let's play that ad because if you listen to it carefully, it sounds like the same formula and blueprint of the most recent ad we just heard in Michigan. 
I'm Claire McCaskill, and I approve this message. The most conservative congressman in Missouri, as our senator, Todd Aiken. A crusader against bigger government, Aiken would completely eliminate the departments of education and energy and privatize Social Security. Todd's pro-family agenda would outlaw many forms of contraception, and Aiken alone says President Obama is a complete menace to our civilization. Todd Aiken, Missouri's true conservative, is just too conservative. Okay, I want oh, to jump in here real quick. Because that was a, a little more There's a obvious. key line there. Yeah. He said, Todd Aiken alone mm-hmm. can deal with the menacing mm-hmm. Barack Obama. Not the other two candidates. Right. Right. Todd Aiken. And this is before the general, the, before the, the primary. Mm-hmm. So Todd Aiken was not yet the Republican nominee. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. That, so I noticed that, like that they used the term pro-family. Oh, the Republicans love this, yeah. right? The pro-family and the, you know, doing away with agenda. the Department of Energy and the Department <laughs> of Education, right? Yeah, they all want to do away with the Departments of Energy yeah. and Education. Yeah. And it also speaks to Democrat. It's a Democrat hearing that. I'm like, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But it's really red meat in a primary. Wow. This is red meat. may not be that great in a general election, but wow. You know, in a primary, it really incites a lot of folks. Wow. So there's a little historical background on the Democrats' involvement in, in these kind of elections. Now, they haven't been as active doing this over the last several years. Sure. But now, after January 6th, uh, there's an opportunity to really kind of exploit this wedge that's happening in the Republican Party between the rhinos and the MAGAs. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. You know, I'm looking at this piece that, uh, that Peter Meyer wrote, mm-hmm. and uh, he's quoting— um, now the Republican nominee for this seat, John Gibbs, he's quoting his uh, his Twitter feed, and he says that the Democrats are the party of Islam, gender bending, anti police, you racist, and he says that um, that uh, well, what's his name? He was Cl- Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign, Podesta. John Podesta. John Podesta. Yes. Uh, he's a Satanist who performs satanic, satanic rituals. rituals. Well, I've said yeah. this before on the show. John Podesta goes to my church, and I've seen him in church. Not every Sunday, mm-hmm. but he goes to church. I've never seen him engaged in any satanic rituals. Maybe that Catholic church. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! You goodness. know, one of the things that we don't really know is. Well, even if we do know that these kinds of advertisements are successful in the primaries, Mm -hmm. now in the post-Trump era, we don't know if they'll be successful in the general. So the Democrats are running a serious risk of putting some of the most crazed right-wing extremists in Congress and in state houses. Right. In Pennsylvania, this is something we really got to watch because Josh Shapiro ran the same ad. I didn't want to just keep running the same ad because his ad sounds exactly like the same formula, McCaskill and the DCCC, when he bolstered Mastriano, who did win. Now, Pennsylvania is very interesting because the Secretary of State is appointed Appointed by the governor. In Pennsylvania, correct. It's not an elected position has said that he would decertify the 2020, you know, yeah. uh, elections. So he would appoint a secretary of state that would be kind of wild. Yeah. So, I mean, think about this. Uh, Pennsylvania is a swing state. It's very important in presidential elections as well. I mean, that's teeing things up for a disaster. And Josh Shapiro may be partially responsible for upending the next 
2024 election. You sent me something that was absolutely fascinating. It was so well done. These are the latest numbers from Mm 538.com. They have all 50 states, the governorships, and uh, the Senate races. And in Pennsylvania, uh, the forecasted vote share, if the election were today, would be Josh Shapiro, 52.3, and Doug Mastriano, 45.6. That looks like an easy win, but we are many months Mm -hmm. away from an election, and anything can happen. Anything at all can happen. It's a lifetime in politics, isn't it? A couple months. Indeed, it's a lifetime in politics. And just keeping on Pennsylvania, um, John Fetterman said today that he's going to start campaigning again today, right? So he's recovered from his stroke. He's been beating the hell out of Mehmet Oz and uh, using social media more successfully than pretty much anybody else. But listen to the numbers in that race Fetterman, 50. And Oz, 46.8. That is very, very close. It is close. And I I suspect that Oz, as we get into the general election, will moderate, you know, and and become less Trumpian in order to compete with... uh, Shapiro. Well, let I mean, me ask I mean, you something yeah, about that. In order that, to compete with with, uh, <laughs> with Fetterman. Fetterman, I'm sorry. Let me yes. ask you something about that. Uh, you you look at the at the Oz campaign, mm-hmm. and he looks like a deer in the headlights. He looks confused. Mm-hmm. He hasn't at all responded to these uh, uh, social media jabs that Fetterman has been has been uh, landing. You know, we had the Stevie Van Zandt oh, that was fun. Uh, yeah. thing. That mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. We had Snooky from Jersey mm-hmm. Shore. Um, I saw a couple of days ago, you know, this is prime <laughs> beach vacation time. And he's running um, he's running ads attached to the backs of airplanes going up and down the beach oh uh, asking uh, where Dr. Oz is and why he's not coming <laughs> home to New Jersey. <laughs> Springsteen's going to start touring. I wonder if he'll like give a mention. I bet he will. And Oz just is not responding to this at all. And, you know, it's hard to find news like real news on this race right now, in part because it's so early. But um, I mean, sorry, I'm looking at, you know, there's been speculation, not serious speculation, but Oz's responses have been actually so so bad that there is joking speculation that somebody on his social media team is actually a Fetterman fan. <laughs> and two hours ago, he's got a tweet. It's a tweet out, you know, Fetterman's a fraud, wondering what he's doing today. Look below. It's Fetterman, you know, like leaning back. He's shirtless. He's leaning back. He's in sort of a, you know, it's a got to be a fake photo, although I don't know. But it just sort of makes Fetterman look like the dude. From the Big Lebowski, <laughs> and everybody loves the dude. You know, it's like, oh, oh, that dude. Look at that dude. He's showing out. It's very funny. In the meantime, the RNC is yelling at Oz, saying, "Spend more of your own money. We have to spend our money on these other races." And he says, "I've already spent enough of my own money. I'm not spending anymore." Well, if he doesn't spend anymore, he's not going to win this race. So this is fascinating to me. I, yeah. I mean, not just because I'm from Pennsylvania, but. Yeah, this is well, a this is a very is an big important deal. state. All races yeah. should be this fun, though. I they mean, I, you can say That's on one right. hand, oh, it should be 
Uh, it should be about the issues. Trolling is beneath us, whatever. But if you're saying this is fascinating, right? Imagine if people were fascinated by the campaigns yeah. of, of mm-hmm. uh, you know, right. for, for local, uh, uh, right. whatever, local positions. Yeah, We'd have 90 percent uh, participation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if it does give you some insight into into who they are and their personalities and how they respond to things, I yeah. mean, at least to get people to pay some attention and then maybe get so invested. Oh, OK, I'll, I'll go yeah. vote. That would be nice. State level election. Yeah. Make it compelling. Make it compelling. Mm -hmm. But don't spend that much money on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's between those between those gutters is the way to go. Make it compelling, but also cheap. That's right. Mm -hmm. Before we get to Kansas, and I know you want to talk about Kansas, um, I want to talk about some of these other numbers. Mitch McConnell uh, made a a statement the other day, not a formal statement. It was just kind of a throwaway as part of a conversation saying that um, he believes that it's going to be an uphill battle for the Republicans to win control of the Senate. Remember, they only need to win one seat, but the Republicans believe that Fetterman is going to win, which means they need to pick up two seats. The Democrats think they have a shot to pick up another seat in Wisconsin. 538 is saying, don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? So I'm looking at Wisconsin here. That was supposed to be a Democratic win in, in, you know, regardless of what kind of a year it was. And we've got Senator Ron Johnson, one of the most conservative MAGA pro-Trump election denying Mm -hmm. members of the U.S. Senate, 51.7%. Versus Mandela Barnes, the the progressive lieutenant governor, forty eight point three percent. Now, Mandela Barnes was arguably the well. Let me, let me rephrase this. Mandela Barnes is the most popular candidate among progressives, right? But in head to head matchups against Ron Johnson, he pulled the worst of the three Democrats running for the Senate. Mm. Well, Wisconsin had its primary a few weeks ago and Mandela Barnes won. So now Democrats are saying, oh, we should have elected Mm. that woman who was the attorney general because her poll numbers showed her at 51 percent. So now the Democrats are going to have to spend some money in Wisconsin. That's number one. Number two, we've talked a couple times on the show about the Nevada Senate race. 538 has it as a toss-up. This is Senator Catherine Cortez Masto Mm -hmm. versus Adam Laxalt, the grandson of Senator and Governor Paul Laxalt. Um, They've got Cortez Masto, 49, and Laxalt, 48. Very, very close. And then in other places where Democrats thought they might have a shot, like North Carolina— um, they've got uh, Representative Ted Budd, the uh, Republican, at 49.8, and uh, Sherry Beasley, the Democrat, she's the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, 46.5. So that looks Republican. Arizona um, looks like it's going to be Mark Kelly, you know, mm-hmm. in part because this gubernatorial race in Arizona made the Republicans look like a bunch of crazy people. Oh, look out. It really you've did. You've got Carrie Lake. Yeah. And you've got the, uh, what's his name, Finchman yeah. for Secretary of State. Another nut. And then Masters on the ballot for Senate. These are all ultra MAGA people. Yep. Yep. They're so. all MAGA people. But it looks like 
Mark Kelly is going to win that race, mm-hmm. at least again at this early at this, stage. This point, he's pulled polling fifty point seven to uh, uh, forty seven point one for Blake Masters. So, okay, so my my point here. Sorry about that. I I danced around the point. (laughs) My point here is it looks like the Democrats are going to win one or two seats, Mm -hmm. even if it looks like the Republicans are going to win the House. Now, one other point before we get to Kansas in the House, there have been a whole bunch of polls Um, over the past week. The generic Democrat versus Republican polls for the House of Representatives. I got him here in front of me. Democrats by five, Republicans by one, Democrats by two, Republicans by three, Democrats by three. That is really, really close. Uh, yeah, and it, and it wasn't supposed to be this close. It wasn't supposed to be this close. This, this has be to be Roe v. Wade. This that is did a this. historical slam dunk. Yeah. For the Republicans, you know, the outside party usually wins on the midterms. Yes. Right? And uh, and this not, president yeah, is especially unpopular with low un, with low approval numbers uh-huh. and the economy as it is. I mean, we're just hearing these job reports right now, which indicates to me that the Fed's going to continue to uh, raise interest rates. It's going to slow the economy down. Those kind of things could start happening, you know, into the fall. It's going to affect voters. Right. Yep. But you're right. Abortion is a topic. That has come up, and it's going to be a real pain for Republicans. It's been a safe place to be as a Republican to say yes. that you're pro-life and you're not for abortion. Right. But now the devil is in the details. That's right, because most Americans mm-hmm. um, want abortion to be available when a woman needs one mm-hmm. with some restrictions. Right? I yeah. mean, it's been like this for decades. Yeah, it's Hold steady. Yeah, yeah, it holds steady, and it really pulls. Well, I think Republicans are going to kind of coalesce around the jo- the Dobbs fifteen week uh, yeah. thing because most abortions, you know, are performed ninety two percent within the first ten weeks or mm-hmm. twelve weeks. So it's kind of a safe place for Republicans in terms of uh, speaking to independents and folks that do want abortion to be allowed with some restrictions. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really difficult for Republicans or the hardliners. And there's so many of them in state houses. So there's a competition between where you may have a more establishment Republican that's a governor, maybe. And then you have a really conservative state house. that's still trying to push legislation through to restrict abortion. Right. Um, one other Issue too, you know, abortion's a big deal in Florida, and uh, Ron DeSantis is running for re-election this year. And he's taken a hard line on it. He's taken a very hard line on it. Well, he also decided. We mentioned this on the show yesterday. He's also decided to take a very hard line on education. Well, let me back up to abortion. He fired the uh, state's attorney for Tampa because yesterday, because the state's attorney said that he would not prosecute women who get abortions or the doctors who provide them. So they threw him out, or DeSantis threw him out. Mm-hmm. But DeSantis also ordered all Florida teachers to go to this three-day seminar on teaching patriotic history. And part of this seminar mandates that teachers have to say that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were opposed to slavery. But we all know that they own slaves Jefferson was reportedly indifferent to his slaves. Washington was cruel to well, his slaves. Except 
Indifferent to most, not indifferent to well, Sally Hemings. Yeah, but Sally Hemings was the half sister of his wife, mm-hmm, okay. and yeah, mm-hmm, you're right. For sure. Just well, I, when I say indifferent, I mean like even after um, he had children with Sally Hemings, he ignored her. He ignored oh, yeah. her, yeah, and he ignored his children with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Washington was cruel to his slaves. And now we're going to teach our children that they were abolitionists? That's outrageous. That's just historically so, wrong. Just outrageous, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's simply historically crazy, wrong. Yeah. So anyway, uh, final thoughts about Kansas, Florida, and the role that abortion is going to play in these midterm elections. So abortion, I, I, I kind of thought this would be something that would move voters at some point during the course of the year because we anticipated Roe v. Wade, with, that the decision was going to drop about Roe v. Wade, right? So it didn't even show up on the radar early in the year. And then during the spring, it became kind of moving up in terms of important issues for voters. Mm-hmm. I think Kansas, what we saw happen on Tuesday, may indicate that voters may respond to what happened with the Supreme Court, and, it, and it's going to move up as an issue of importance. Yes. So in Kansas, there's an uh, interpretation by the state Supreme Court that is a lot of the judges, from what I learned, are Demo- Democrats. They were appointed by a Democratic governor. So the the court isn't as conservative as some of them in the the lawmakers in the state house. Yes. So the interpretation was that the Kansas Constitution allowed for abortion, right? So a ballot measure that was funded by the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, spent six million dollars on this campaign to place an amendment that would outlaw abortion. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Voters came out in droves, and they voted it down. Wow. And what's interesting is it's not just Democrats that voted it down. There's a lot of independents. Sure. Some of your more, you know, uh, mainstream Republicans, I guess you would say. So um, I want to play a clip. This was uh, gathered by the New York Times. They interviewed folks that went to the polls. You know, why did Uh you go? Why, you know, why? What about this uh, measure incited you to go to the polls? And so let's play that clip and just get a little feedback from Kansas voters. Uh, My name is Whitney DeVoe. I live in Wichita, Kansas, and I'm a medical laboratory scientist. James O. Kirker, 84, and I'm retired. So my name is Tyler Gilman. I am 32 years old. My name is Brenda Whitaker, and I'm a retired art director. I worked for Hallmark Cards for 28 years. Hey, I'm Andy, and I am a registered Republican in Kansas. I identify as a conservative. As a Republican. Independent. Um, a little politically homeless. I voted no. I voted no. I voted no on the constitutional amendment. This was the very first state-level election I have ever voted in. This was not a candidate that we were voting on here. We were voting very strictly on... Do you want to maintain the 
protections for choice that we have in Kansas, or do you want to give the legislature the ability to effectively ban that? It's not a matter of Republican or Democratic. It's a matter of human rights. This isn't a conservative or Democrat problem. It's a life problem. Yeah, I can sit here and tell you that I don't like the idea of an abortion, but I also don't like the idea of me telling other people how to have that own internal dialogue with themselves. I was raped when I was 18, and at that time, there there were no abortions available. So luckily I didn't get pregnant, but it really would have ruined my life at that time if I had. I think basically it ought to be a free choice of the woman. Most of my friends who are Republicans believe that, yeah, they're not okay with late-term abortion, but they're also not okay with just banning it altogether. And I think that Kansas is showing that people want to vote on these issues, and these issues need to be up for vote. Wow. That was very powerful. That was New York Times. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and like we said on the show the other day, uh, Kansas is just about as red a state as there yeah, is. Yeah, what in the happened union. to Kansas? Remember the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, <laughs> right. So th- this we may see things like this I- in other states. Right now, the question that I have, I think, is really interesting to tease out is. This really was moved by activists on the ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a door-to-door campaign. You know, and it's it, it was an individual measure dealing specifically with abortion. So um, I don't know how this is going to play out in the general election with all the other issues on the ballot and other uh, candidates and stuff. But if people are moved to vote uh, on this, I mean, people will vote on this issue. Yes. Yes, I think so, it's too. It's enough of an issue to drive voter turnout. Hey, before we let you go, I want to I want to say one quick thing about this. The, this story just appeared on CNN that's kind of funny to mm-hmm. me. There, uh, There is one member of Congress, mm-hmm. uh, a woman by the name of Victoria Sparks. She's a Republican from Indiana. She's the only member of Congress who was born in Ukraine. Okay. Right? So she's the only Ukrainian, like full-blooded Ukrainian-American member of Congress. Uh Members of both parties, leaders of both parties, have asked her to tone it down because she's so stridently anti-Russian that she's actually setting back the Ukrainian cause in in Congress. Oh no! They're calling her a bull in the in a china shop, and um, and they uh. Her criticisms of President Zelensky are that he's not tough enough, he's not mean enough, he's not bad enough, he he needs to get tougher with the Russians and kill more people. And and so there there's a CODEL, a congressional delegation that just left for uh, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congress is not in session right now. They specifically did not invite her. Man. And if, she went anyway. If they're asking you to tone it down at this point. Imagine what she must be saying. That's she, uh, that's wild. She went anyway. It, oh, that's great. It says she's been accused of being argumentative, accusatory, and unhelpful. And one GOP lawmaker said she crashed our codel and she was like a bull in a china shop. Oh. I don't know if it's just pent up frustration or she didn't feel like she was getting enough proper information, but she was accusatory and outright rude. Wow. <laughs> oh, my and God. That's great. Hey, can I also tell you I've solved the mystery of the um, oh. 
Great. It was the it was the Hill tweeting a quote from the press secretary. So she did say new rule issued, but I didn't want to impugn oh, press secretary suggesting okay. that she had uh, they had tweeted something and then deleted it. I did not find that. Excellent. Still, that's a disappointment. And then final, final thought, the Republican National Committee has just announced a moment ago that it will hold its next presidential convention in the great city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Very cool. It's Neat. a purple state. They need to win Wisconsin. It makes sense. It's, they would it's go a there. smart move. Some of the reporting coming out of, of CPAC is pretty uh, fun. <laughs> There's apparently this is someone who's there, pictures of it, whatever. There's a, a little booth with a guy in an orange jumpsuit who's behind bars and you can put on headphones and listen to, I guess, uh, the testimony from people who are involved in January 6th. Oh, my God. Who are like uh, upset. And then man is uh, intended to be, you know, an, in, an inmate in jail, and he's yeah. just crying. He cries. It's like an art installation. And there's installation. like a, a chalkboard behind him that says, where is everyone? <laughs> yeah, it's an art installation. It's supposed to be like, it's supposed to move you to the plight of the January 6th defendants. Awesome. And, awesome. and, and make sure they're not forgotten. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break, um, and we're going to come back with a new segment we're going to do periodically. We'll get into that in a second, mm-hmm. but we're going to take a short break and come back with more. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host Michelle Witte. We want to begin a new short segment today on the arts, which we'll bring to you periodically. We'll not... call it arts on occasion. Yes. <laughs> arts that we will not force down your throat. Yes. <laughs> um, there's so much going on in the world of, of art, of film and entertainment mm-hmm. and, you know, theater and whatever uh, that we didn't want uh, people to miss out. Yeah. So today we're going to start with the issue of NFTs or non-fungible tokens. My which favorite. We've talked about a number of times. Things that and have Chris so much Garofa value has, that I wish I had more of. Yep. That are, they're real things you should put your money into. Right. They're all very beautiful. <laughs> well, we've talked about this a few times with Chris Garofa, and I think mm-hmm. that that we're all in agreement that NFTs are a scam. Yeah. I think. Mostly. Yeah, mostly. Well, according to Artnet News, famed British artist Damien Hirst, mm decided to create, he, he, he did like an experiment. Mm-hmm. He decided to create 10,000 copies of a, a, a print called currency, right? It, it's a 12 inch by 12 inch sheet of handmade paper with dots of mm-hmm. different colors. He's famous for these dots, yep. right? And he just gives them wacky titles like Currency. I think he also just famously uh, either did or was going to destroy a bunch of his art. Yeah, he did. As part of a thing. Okay. This is part of it. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's, like I say, a sheet of handmade paper covered in these colored dots that he's become famous for. You could either buy the piece through his uh, Twitter uh, account mm-hmm. for a set price, or you could buy an NFT of the piece. For a price that changed every day based on the popularity of the NFT. So there you was could an buy algorithm. the real thing. Yeah. 
Or you could buy an NFT of it. Right. Okay. Right. Exactly. Now, this has been going on for 12 months. Mm -hmm. It was a 12-month experiment. So in the first month, he sold $47 million worth of the art. Okay. In the first month. The art. art, I mean, of of the two. Oh, okay. okay. Of the two. That's both physical pieces and NFTs. But then over the following 11 months, he sold almost zero NFTs. And... The price fell to $2,000. It was $20,000 for most of that. Uh It fell to $2,000. Nobody wanted the NFTs. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up selling most of the rest of the the actual paper ones. Now, he made 10,000 of the paper ones. There were a couple thousand that were unsold. But because this was part of an experiment... He doesn't want to dilute the value of the ones that people actually bought. So he burned all of the remaining Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, artworks. mm -hmm. That's. Yeah. Yeah. He said he still loves the idea of NFTs, but he now realizes that people just don't want them. They want art that they can actually hang on their walls. I haven't actually heard anything about NFTs for a couple of weeks. It's been the longest since they came to my attention Mm -hmm. that I haven't heard anything or thought anything about NFTs. I think the, the fad has has uh yeah started its yeah, I downward trend. Yeah, wonder how much trend. some of those bored apes are worth now. Seriously, like nothing. And I do wonder who got caught holding the bag. Yeah. I hope it's the likes of Jimmy Kimmel and uh Yes, and know, Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Here's an odd story. Priscilla Presley, mm-hmm. the former wife of superstar Elvis Presley, mm-hmm. has reportedly found a box of what she is calling long-lost jewelry given by Elvis to Colonel Tom Parker, his manager. Uh, It's unclear how the box came to be in her possession, but she's decided to auction off its contents at an auction in California on August the 27th. Hmm. So according to GWS Auctions, this cash includes jewel-encrusted gold rings. Classy. Yeah. Cufflinks, Uh a guitar, Okay. And a 14 karat gold ring adorned with the letters TCB, flanked by diamond studded lightning bolts. TCB was Elvis's catchphrase. It means taking care of business. Okay, cool. The lightning bolts really drive it home. And because those lightning bolts are diamond studded, mm-hmm. the opening bid is $500,000. Sure. Uh, there were other items in, in the box and other items that she owns that she's auctioning, including. Um, gold pistols, like gold-plated pistols. I want all of this. Elvis's boots. Whoa. Elvis's, Elvis's boots. Elvis's motorcycle, and even a private jet that Elvis bought for his dad. Wow. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. How much are people going to pay for Elvis's boots, do you think? Oh, wow. I mean, Tens Elvis, Elvis memorabilia has to be, yeah, has yeah. to still be worth a lot of money, right? You know, about a year ago, um, there was a whole bunch of Marilyn Monroe memorabilia. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like the biggest auction of Marilyn Monroe stuff ever. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was her her dresses, her nightgowns. But, you know, things like her address book mm-hmm. went for $6,000, $7,000. I mean, that's very personal, yeah. right? If you're, mm-hmm. if you're, that's not sure. like a picture of somebody. That's something no. like she's written in. It's just if you're like a huge fan, it's nice to have something that oh, yeah. in their personal use. And, and it wasn't just, you know, her, her friends or whatever, but it was, you know, Frank Sinatra was in there mm-hmm. with his home phone number and Lucille Ball. And she would make little notations about 
friends that of hers. Really kind of a cool thing yeah. to have. I don't have six thousand dollars to spend no, on it, but you know. I don't either. I have to say I'm utterly addicted to auctions, so I actually follow this stuff. Yeah. I, I don't ever buy anything. I can never afford to, but there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. I'll give you another example. Okay. Speaking of Frank Sinatra, uh-huh. it was an empty um it was an empty uh, prescription pill bottle. Uh, from Frank Sinatra. It says Frank Sinatra on it, and he went to the local Beverly Hills uh, uh, pharmacy for, for a prescription of Vicodin huh. in like 1962, and uh, yeah, it went for like fifteen hundred dollars. That's funny. Yeah, Marilyn Monroe's driver's license. Now that would be cool, man. Yeah. If I went to someone's house and they were like, "Hey, you want to see Marilyn Monroe's <laughs> driver's license?" I'd be like, "Yeah, I want to see if her driver's license picture looks like my driver's license picture, right? Do you look I like you it. just murdered a John in every photo? Or is it just me? <laughs> I just love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another uh, kind of a troubling story. I, I mentioned this to you very briefly as we were walking out one mm-hmm. day. A former executive of France Museums, which is the the governmental agency that runs France's museums, mm-hmm. including the Louvre. Um, and it's also the agency that advised um, the government of Abu Dhabi mm-hmm. on their acquisitions for the opening of the Louvre Abu Dhabi. Okay. Right? The, this executive was indicted and placed under court supervision on Thursday, yesterday. As part of a sprawling, this is what they're calling it, a sprawling international investigation into the alleged trafficking of plundered Egyptian antiquities. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Curator and archaeologist Jean-Francois Charnier, who had been held for questioning since Monday, was charged with giving false provenance information about artworks that entered the collection of the Louvre Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a... A, an official of the Ministry of Culture um, who said that this is absolutely unacceptable under any circumstances, but for the, the head of acquisitions mm-hmm. to be trafficking in looted uh, antiquities with false provenances, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to have to make a, a horrifying an example thought. Of if you have exist in the last, like, uh, how many decades would you say? Seriously. Three or four? Because prior to this, a century ago, for sure. Yeah. I would say the head of acquisitions for every major yeah. uh, European or right. American museum would absolutely have gotten their start right. and continued dealing in, in uh, plundered antiquities. But, you know what I mean? Now, so it's interesting. Now, of course, oh, absolutely. Almost every country, n- not every, but almost every country has antiquities protection laws. Yes. And so you just can't do this kind of thing anymore. Well, you can't do it legally. L- I mean, legally. I wonder if this arose out of uh, the Paradise Papers, right? I think that was the— It, it was very the, well I could think have. It was the Paradise Papers, right? Uh-huh. That— um, nailed uh, some some other dude, right? Yes. And you know, looked into how are people how are people laundering their money? What are people lying about financially? Mm-hmm. Oh, it turns out it's art. Uh. It's art. I mean, it's art been a dirty high end real estate. It's been an incredibly dirty business from the start. You know, it, yes. there was a time when people thought nothing of plundering mm-hmm. antiquities, and that was just how you stocked your museum. That's right. And I think it has been actually pretty hard to change. Certainly, it's been very hard to reverse. Yes, indeed. And so, you and know, and then when you have wars in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And uh, the entire uh, Baghdad Archaeological Museum is looted and plundered. And then all of a sudden, Sotheby's in Geneva and in London and New York is flush with these unbelievable Mesopotamian uh, antiquities. 
you've got a problem. Here's the thing. Anybody, uh, you, I just have to think anyone who is dealing with that much money, you know what I mean? Whether at the head of an organization or really more like any individual who's got this much money. Yeah. You didn't come by it through mm-hmm. your your uh, strict adherence to ethics no. and, and morals, right? No. Agreed. So why should we really be surprised? That's right. Yeah. Not necessarily this guy, but like, yeah, Sotheby's and, and all this. Yeah. They look at, look at who your bedfellows are. Yeah. One Wild. last art uh, story. Uh, Johnny Depp, it mm-hmm. turns out, paints in his spare time. Oh, neat. Yeah. And we didn't know this until the end of the trial, the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. I don't he remember. never said anything about painting, yeah. but. Um, he said in an interview, oh, I like to paint. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, 780 paintings. paintings Can you okay. imagine 780 paintings pop up at, um, at a gallery called Castle Fine Art in London? Mm-hmm. Every last one of them sold out. Yeah. Uh, they depict people who have inspired Johnny Depp, like Elizabeth Taylor and Keith Richards and his friends from Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, they went for uh, between $4,800 and $18,000. Every piece sold, and in just hours, he made $3.6 million. They're sort of like a comic book art style. Yeah, they're described as pseudo-pop art. Yeah, but really, it's like it looks like comic book yeah. illustration style. You know what? I mean, I don't really want any of them, but... Probably better than Hunter Biden's paint. Hunter Biden's, there was one image where I was like, all right, I like the color. That's fine. But yeah, if you were going to ask someone to do a portrait for you, for sure, go to Johnny Depp over uh, over over Hunter Hunter Biden Biden. (laughs) and over George W. Bush. All right. You know what? I thought I thought they might be worse. No, they're okay. I mean, he's a lot better uh, illustrator than I am. Well, that's that's it for our new arts uh, segment. I've got an entertainment I'd love to submission hear here that I ha- I thought this was breaking news, but it came out yesterday and we missed it. It's about Kevin Spacey. Did you see this? No, I did not. Kevin Spacey has been ordered to pay uh, the House of Cards production company oh. $31 million. Oh, my God. Because of his alleged se- mm-hmm. sexual misconduct uh, while they were filming that Netflix series. Wow. Yep. They confirmed it was an L.A. court superior judge who confirmed an award that had been handed down by an arbitrator in October of 2020. Um, $29 million in damages and about $1 million, a million and a half in costs and fees. So, wow. Yeah. And yet, still out there. He is. He's still out there. He's already made a little bit of a comeback. Yep. Um, if it's okay with you, let's skip our break. Yeah. Uh, and it's, no, tell me something weird, It's John. Friday. Tell so me that some means it's, weird yeah, news. It's time for news of the weird. So I'm going to start in North Carolina. Um, Christy Louise Jones, age 49, okay. of Richfield, North Carolina. She was looking for revenge on a former boyfriend. Who isn't? A couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. a week ago. <clears throat> Instead, she got herself in a whole heap of trouble. Oh, dear. So it says here, a woman in a house in Gold Hill, North Carolina, Um, called the Ronan County Sheriff's Office to say that a woman unknown to her was outside her house trying to set it on fire. Oh, no. Oh, honey, that's not the (laughs) way. trying to set it on fire. The arson attempt started with a pile of burning wood on Mm -hmm. the front porch. And while trying to reach the hose, the homeowner realized that his propane tank was also on fire Mm -hmm. and the hose had been blocked up with sealant to make it inoperable. Okay. So it was impossible to put out the fire. Um, That's when he noticed a car parked across the driveway 
and a woman standing beside it. When he approached her, he said, quote, she looked at me like she didn't know who I was. Mm -hmm. What turned out she didn't know who he was because she drove away and was later apprehended and said she was trying to set her boyfriend's house on fire. She thought that was his house. And it turned out he lived a couple blocks away. If you don't know (laughs) where your boyfriend's house is, uh, I mean, I'm going to say maybe he wasn't really your boyfriend. Right. Uh, Who knows? Hey, maybe he moved. We'll we'll give her the benefit of the doubt on that. But still, stupid, stupid idea. That's pretty funny. The deputy said her boyfriend owns property in the area, just not that property. I mean, and also, (laughs) like, I don't know. Oh, let me go burn down some property that doesn't mean anything to him. No, I mean, you got to burn down the house where he actually lives. Do some research. Preferably while he's in it. That's the idea. That's the whole idea. Yeah. How about this? You'll like this one. Okay. Dean Mayhew, age 30, of Sussex, England, has a bad habit of forgetting his Tesco loyalty card when he goes grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. Tesco's the big, you know. Oh, I know Tesco. So he's a scaffolder and a father of seven. He says he goes to the Tesco's up to three times a day because they they always need something. Three times a day. He sounds forgetful. So the savings would really add up if he can get his discounts, but he keeps forgetting his card. So he got the QR code from the card tattooed on his forearm. Uh huh. So now he says it works perfectly. Sometimes I'm not the cleverest of guys, but people have said that for me, this is pretty genius. For every, him. Every time I go in there, every time I go in there, they're shocked. I could use the one on my phone, but I want to use the one on my arm as that, it's funny. Sorry. That's the <laughs> clincher. He forgets his card. But he could use the one on his phone. <laughs> That's where mine is. And we're not set, we're not told that he's forgetting his phone also. So no. he's gotten the arm. Ta- I mean, I'm not mad at the arm tattoo. <laughs> Go for it. Especially if, if you've got a lot of tattoos and you want to have a little convenient one there on your arm. Whatever. Cool. I'm not offended. But the fact that he could use his phone and instead is like, nah, let me put it on. I'd forget me head if it wasn't screwed on, you know, whatever. That's great. Man. Good for this guy. He's there's, probably a fun dad. There's another one that I, when I saw it, I thought you would like it. Okay. It says here, people in Gorakhpur, India, are struggling with record heat and a lack of rainfall, which we see on the news all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it so far. Yeah. <laughs> According to the Daily Star, which is one of the big Delhi papers, mm-hmm. uh, the villagers had a different solution, and it actually worked. Mm-hmm. It's a time-tested belief that frog weddings are held to bring in rain. And so this group found two frogs. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. And they held a wedding ceremony <gasps> for them with hundreds of people turning out to watch. Oh, and then a he... celebratory meal afterwards that the entire village attended. Sure enough, later in the day, heavy rainfall throughout the area. Why not? Why <laughs> not do it? That's fantastic. I think this is wonderful. I wonder, did the did the the families of the frogs decide that these two frogs should get together and well, sit down and negotiate. All those marriages are arranged, yeah, so yes, yes, it would have to. Be, have been. Uh, I want to uh, now. All I want to do is go to a frog wedding this weekend. <laughs> you know, find me some frogs. Uh, I've got a couple more. Uh, more heat wave fun. University of British Columbia researcher Allison McAfee told Metro News that when outdoor temperatures exceed 107 degrees Fahrenheit, drone bees—these are the male bees. Mm-hmm begin to convulse, which then causes their sex organs to explode <laughs> from their bodies. No, an that's event so 
sad. I can't believe you made me laugh at that. I love bees. You make me laugh at bee discomfort. It then causes them to die from shock. Well, yeah, I'd be shocked. Like, oh my God. Yeah. What just happened? I would be astonished. McAfee says, it's pretty extreme. Yes, it is. That's a temperature they normally shouldn't experience, but we're seeing drones getting stressed to the point of death, and she believes that drones are one of the most effective indicators of climate change. I would agree with that. so sad. Now my first I laughed, now my heart is broken, John. This is a a lot for a Friday. That's terrible. Um, Who put this one in? Did Ray put this one in? Where? Uh, oh. The next one. The headline is, I was really struggling to get it up. Why? Oh, oh this, you is a, did. this is a story about, yeah, I didn't, we didn't have to talk. I just was like looking at, you know, coming across headlines. Yeah. And, uh, and That's seeing, a pretty provocative some, headline. Well, there's some story about uh, young men increasingly taking Viagra and people warning, like, you shouldn't do this. Yeah, Probably why not would they good do for that? your health. Well, I can tell you why, but uh, yeah, no, it seems dangerous to me. It seems like you're playing with fire, fellas. No, the, the st- I also dropped in this other story. There's another, I, I, there are a couple things I want to make sure we mention before we go today, John, if, you, if you're finished telling me weird I, tales. I'm, I'm all we should probably out. mention uh, this news that we got just as we were walking into the studio, right, that Israel had, yes. uh, had uh, um, undertaken airstrikes in Gaza. Uh, right. It said they targeted uh, military officials. They've killed a senior leader in, uh, who are they saying a senior leader in? I mean, I'm assuming it's Hamas, but actually. Yeah, that, that's all I saw was no, a, a Islamic senior Jihad. Uh. It's Islamic Jihad. They are saying that they have killed a top Islamic Jihad leader um, and at least nine other people, the Palestinian uh, Ministry of Health says one of those people were a five-year-old girl. There are reports of extensive damage to high-rise apartment buildings. So, you know, Gaza, one of the most densely populated places on the on planet. Earth. Really yep. hard to uh, conduct airstrikes responsibly yes. in an area like that. So, once again, um, you know, who knows? Israel periodically is able to launch strikes yeah, like these and, and get away with it. But and who the knows question, if this is going to portend or, you know, uh, affect yeah, some kind exactly. of reaction exactly. from Hamas. Yes, that's yeah. the question right there. Yeah. Um, so tell me, we've got a couple of minutes left. Tell me about this uh, move to uh, put age limits on elective oh, office. Oh, this is something, yeah, this caught my eye. This is in the Washington Post. and edit, One of their editorial writers uh, today was advocating for age limits uh, on people holding high office and saying American public opinion was with him. He cited a recent YouGov poll that shows 58% of Americans favor an upper age limit on office holding generally, and the most, by far, Far the most popular number is uh, 70 years as the cutoff. I think it was 39% of those who uh, uh, wanted some kind of cutoff said that. Then a wow. smaller number said 80, a smaller number said 60. Um, the YouGov poll shows that Republicans are slightly more likely than Democrats and independents to say there should be a maximum age requirement. 64% of Republicans polled, they said they wanted one. 60% of independents, 57% of Democrats. And it was interesting to see how. The limits would impact the makeup of our current administration and Congress. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, of course, Joe Biden, uh, Nancy Pelosi, 31 senators and two Supreme Court justices are at least 70 years old. Uh, if if uh, the limit, if the age limit were 70, 30 percent of people in Congress would be ineligible to serve. Wow. If it was 60, it would be 71 percent of current senators would be ineligible wow. to hold. Oh, sorry. If it, it would be 30% of the Senate. 
would be ineligible if the cutoff age was 70. So, you know, he's saying like we are looking ahead to a possible, if not probable, rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, both of whom are old, old men, old men, only getting older. Nobody wants them mm-hmm. No, in either party. Nobody wants people want somebody else to run. Mm-hmm. And uh, there really should be a mechanism for for ensuring that we aren't just run by a, a powerful, wealthy gerontocracy who That's have right. been able to accumulate that power and wealth through the very office they hold. And yes. if we can't rely on, you know, your own internal uh, morality and sense of decency to to step down, well, maybe there should be an enforcement mechanism. Yes. Yeah, which I thought, sure, I'll, I'm into that. That's great. You know, and with numbers like that, too, you would have to think that with a little bit of time, as more and more people are informed, uh, you might be able to meet the requirements for a congr- for a constitutional amendment. That would be funny if we can do a constitutional. I mean, yeah, why yeah. not? It was a constitutional amendment um, that uh, set up the age of 30 and 35, That's right? Right? Yes, right? Or am I wrong? Was that in the original? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. 25 people, for the House, 30 for the Senate, and 35 for the presidency. And people all agreed that seemed sensible mm-hmm. and not ageist in some right. way or another. So, yeah, I think let's get behind it, John. This can be our new I'm our new passion it. project. I'm all for it. 70s enough. I think that's all, all we've got yeah, for this week. Yeah, we're out week. of time. <laughs> that was a fun week. That was. Yeah. Oh. I want to say thanks to all of our guests for today and the whole week. Thanks, of course, to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next week. 